Welcome to the Harvard University Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies Wednesday le lectures on critical issues for contemporary China. I'm Bill Overholt from the Harvard Kennedy School. Fairbanks Center Director Michael Sony joins me in welcoming our distinguished speaker, Jeffrey Lehman. U.S. business is frequently a decisive actor in Sino-American relations. <clears throat> in the 1990s, when I was a governor of the Hong Kong American Chamber of Commerce, the main role of big business was to explain China empathically to the U.S. Congress. That has changed decisively, <clears throat> both because China has changed and the relationship has changed. Business, uh, at least major parts of business, uh, often complains bitterly about China's unfair trading practices. At the same time, uh, business makes a great deal of money in China. Uh, it's making more money each year, and it wants that expansion to continue. Uh, business often complains bitterly about the self-destructive effect of tariffs that began under Trump and continue under Biden. It's complicated. Nobody is better positioned to explicate the positions of the U.S. business community than Jeffrey Lehman. <clears throat> he is chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. That chamber does the most authoritative surveys of American business in China. He is also vice chancellor of New York University's campus in Shanghai and professor of law there. He has served as dean of the University of Michigan Law School, as president of Cornell University, and as a founding dean of a school of transnational law in Beijing. When you have questions, uh, please write them using the question and answer function at the bottom of your screen. We'll have plenty of time for questions and I will uh, collate them for Professor Lehman. Welcome, Professor Lehman. Over to you. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Overholt. And I, I want to first uh, thank everyone for moving up the time of this webinar from its normal time to accommodate my location. Uh, I also want to note that despite the various hats that I sometimes wear, I'm speaking today only for myself and not for NYU, NYU Shanghai, uh, or the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. So last month, uh, Professor Overholt emailed me with an invitation uh, to speak to this group uh, about the question, what does U.S. business really want from China? And I think I should start by making explicit how I have interpreted that question. Um, so the interpretation that I've not taken is how do U.S. businesses wish the Chinese state would change its treatment of them? Uh, I don't deny the importance of that question, but I have gone in a different direction. 
Uh, instead of understanding the question to be about what U.S. business wants from China, the state, uh, I've taken it to be about what U.S. business wants from the nation of 1.4 billion Chinese people. Uh, so the question I will talk about is whether U.S. businesses really want to stay tightly coupled with China, uh, and if so, how and why. Part of why I've chosen to go in that direction is that this past June, uh, I was in D.C. for the first time in a year and a half, and I was stunned uh, by how many people think that when it comes to making government policy, the perceptions of American businesses in China uh, should be discounted uh, in the same way that the perceptions of American academics uh, should be discounted uh, when considering the China Initiative. Um, if you will indulge me, I'd like to offer gentle caricatures of three different arguments that I came away feeling are floating around Washington uh, for why the perceptions of U.S. businesses uh, should be given little, if any, weight in fashioning public policy nowadays. So my caricature of the first argument is that American businesses in China are servants of mamon, filthy profit maximizers, and their views should therefore be ignored by servants of the public who are devoted to American values. Uh, my caricature of the second argument is that American businesses in China are lambs to the slaughter, naively giving away their patrimony, and their views should therefore be ignored by servants of the public who hold security clearances. And my caricature of the third argument is that American businesses in China are opium addicts, incapable of recognizing when they are in danger, and their views should therefore be ignored by servants of the public who want to protect them from themselves. So in my presentation today, I'm going to explain why I, for one, uh, believe each of those arguments is seriously flawed, uh, and I will try to make the case that those who would set aside the perceptions and interests of American businesses in China should at least have to carry a heavy burden of proof that their policies are well-grounded in empirical reality and moral principle, as opposed to hand-waving about what the voters are supposedly demanding, uh, which is what I heard a lot of uh, in Washington. So permit me to start by stating out loud a background proposition that should be uncontroversial, I think. Um, the proposition is that when we speak about U.S. businesses and their desires, we are offering generalizations that are usually inaccurate. Um, every U.S. business has its own idiosyncratic set of reasons uh, for being coupled to China. Every U.S. board, every U.S. CEO have their own ambitions for how they want to bring value to their customers, their employees, and their investors through market exchanges. Each one will have its own strategy for realizing those ambitions, and each one will have its own analysis of how China features in that strategy. So whenever we make generalizations about American business motivations, we're going to lose important nuance and texture and precision. Nonetheless, we do so, because if we don't make at least some of those generalizations, it's impossible to make policy. So 
in my presentation right now, I'm going to show my respect for that background proposition by wherever I can using slightly less sweeping generalizations. Wherever possible, I'm going to refrain from speaking about American businesses in China and instead speak about American manufacturing businesses in China, American service businesses in China, and American retail businesses that are selling products to Chinese consumers. So uh, I want to move now to some survey data. Um, the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai has about 1,200 member companies with operations and personnel in China. Uh, of those 1,200 companies, about 50% uh, describe themselves as being primarily manufacturers. About 10% describe themselves as being primarily service providers. And about 40% describe themselves as being primarily retail sales operations. AmCham Shanghai is now uh, by far the largest chamber of commerce in China, and its membership spans almost the full range of American businesses that one might think of being coupled with China today. Uh, the two most important exceptions are American companies that sell products to Chinese purchasers without having a substantial physical presence in China, and American companies that purchase intermediate goods from China without having a substantial physical presence here. So every summer, AmCham surveys its members and publishes the results as the China Business Report, or CBR. This is what it looks like. Um, whoops, it's hard to see with uh, Zoom. Anyway, the CBR uh, usually gets about 340 responses from our members. Uh, this year, we received 338, which we consider a decent response rate. So I'm going to try to share slides showing uh, some of the results from this year's survey. Okay. Um, so, uh, Bill, you can confirm that the proper slide is showing here. Uh, this is showing this year's respondent company's global revenues by sector. Great. So, uh, as you can see, um, the retail businesses tend to be the biggest, uh, followed by the manufacturers, followed by the service firms. So this slide shows how long they've been in China. More than 80% have been here for at least a decade. For manufacturing firms, it's more than 90%. Here you see the size of the respondents' employee footprints in China. Uh, in retail and manufacturing, uh, about half uh, of the respondents would be considered large based on their China presence alone. Uh, in the service sector, however, uh, almost 40% have fewer than 50 uh, employees. So here you see uh, how much of their global revenues derive from their work uh, here in China. Um, I think one could interpret this table in different ways, but I guess I would note that uh, across sectors, uh, about half the firms currently derive less than 10% of their total revenues from China, 
and have derived more than 10% uh, from China. So uh, what I've talked about so far in a nutshell is the static picture of how deeply interconnected things are today. Um, now I want to turn to the dynamic uh, picture uh, about how businesses today expect things will be uh, in the future. And so here are some other responses to the survey that you may find interesting. So this question asked respondents what their five-year outlook is for businesses in China. Uh, we ask this question every year. When we did our press conference a couple of weeks ago, this question uh, was the basis for my, my top-line message that we are now seeing a rebound of optimism. Uh, until 2019, the norm was that about 80% uh, of respondents would be at least slightly optimistic uh, about the subsequent five years, and fewer than 10% uh, would be pessimistic. In 2019, uh, with the trade war, things uh, worsened uh, significantly uh, to 60% uh, slight, at least slightly optimistic versus 20% pessimistic. Uh, in 2020, uh, things uh, with COVID uh, stayed uh, where they had been uh, in 2019. But then this year, we saw a rebound back uh, to 80% at least slightly optimistic and only 10% pessimistic. So this table breaks it down by sector. Uh, and as you can see, the services sector is slightly less optimistic uh, than the other two, but not hugely so. It's still uh, experiencing uh, a rebound. Okay. So during the past two years, we've obviously uh, heard a lot of discussion about supply chains. Uh, during the trade war, and during COVID, uh, during the Trump administration, and now during the Biden administration, there's been a lot of talk about how the need to maintain supply chain resilience uh, in the face of geopolitical risk and pandemic risk uh, might push American businesses uh, to reshore, to move their operations out of China uh, and back to the U.S. Um, I, I think it certainly makes sense uh, to think that uh, in uh, a more volatile climate along many dimensions, um, rational businesses might not want to, to squeeze every last ounce of optimization out, uh, and they might instead want to use a certain amount of supply chain redundancy uh, as insurance uh, against various forms uh, of disruption. Um, so in the survey, uh, we asked our respondents uh, whether they plan uh, to move production out of China. Um, and here were the respondents' responses. 
uh, none of the respondents said they would move any of their production uh, to the U.S. Uh, 7% said they would move to countries outside China other than the U.S. 7% said they would move to other locations inside China uh, to produce redundancy. 7% uh, said they would move to a combination of other places inside ch China and, and third countries outside China. Um, of course, moving existing supply chains is not the only way to build supply chain redundancy. Um, one can also uh, build it uh, without moving production out of China and instead shifting future investments uh, so as to build additional productive capacity elsewhere. And here we see a little bit of shift. Uh, we asked the question, in the past year, have any of your planned future investments in China been redirected to other places? And that's a question uh, we've, we've asked for many years. As you can see, uh, about 19% of respondents indicated that there were plans to redirect future investments uh, from what they otherwise might have been. Um, now, that that is uh, non-trivial. On the other hand, um, as you can see uh, from this graph, it is significantly less redirection than was going on in 2019 uh, in the heat of the trade war. And uh, only 4% of respondents indicated that they have plans to redirect uh, future investments to the United States. Of course, we're not only interested in the potential redirection uh, of future investment, we're also interested in the direction of future investment simpliciter. Are American businesses planning to continue investing in China, full stop? Um, where does China rank uh, in their plans? And as you can see, the answer remains pretty stable uh, over the past three years. Uh, the percentage of respondents who think of China as a low investment priority has actually dropped slightly. Uh, more than a quarter of respondents continue to rank China as their number one investment priority. So this graph looks at the change in level of investment year on year. And you can see that after some pullback in 2019 and 2020, um, the respondents have basically gone back to their pre-2019 uh, ways, uh, increasing their level uh, of investment in China uh, year on year. Um, so that's, uh, that's the description of the what. Uh, what is uh, the plan? Um, uh, for investment in China, for coupling with China. Um, now I want to turn to the question of why. 
why are our members uh, so tightly coupled uh, with China? Um, so, so companies uh, do business uh, in China as buyers or as sellers uh, or both. Uh, 20 years ago, when the general public talked about American businesses in China, the standard perception was that they were primarily in China as buyers. They were outsourcing production uh, from the U.S. to China, uh, purchasing uh, good quality, inexpensive labor, and using that labor to produce stuff that they could sell uh, elsewhere, not in China. Um, this was part of uh, a general determination uh, in business uh, to build more efficient uh, global production networks. Uh, uh, to, you know, in, in, this was the, the world is flat mentality. The, the belief was that uh, highly efficient global production networks uh, would enable both lower prices for consumers uh, and higher profits for investors. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of discussion about how the creation of these global production networks uh, created major employment shocks in the U.S. Uh, for low-skilled workers that, that, that overwhelmed the system. Uh, fast forward 20 years, nowadays, when the general public talks about American businesses in China, uh, the standard perception is that they are at least equally, if not primarily, sellers. Um, they're here to sell goods and services uh, to a huge and rapidly expanding consumer market. Uh, during her talk on Monday, uh, Ambassador Tai put it rather colorfully, uh, she said business has a thirst uh, for increased access uh, to the China market. So um, the, the CBR uh, did ask our respondents uh, what drives their China strategy. And here's what they said. Um, as you can see, most American companies are now not in China to produce exports. Uh, the exporters today are primarily uh, Chinese companies. Instead, most American companies are here to sell to Chinese consumers. Either they're selling things that were made in the U.S. Uh, or more often, they are in China for China. They're using their know-how they're capitalizing on their reputational capital uh, to produce goods and services here for sale here to Chinese uh, customers. So let me, oops. Let me just say that, that none of this data um, surprises me. Uh, during my 13 years of living full-time in China, uh, even though mostly I've been doing university work, uh, I've spent uh, a lot of time with people in the business, government, and diplomatic worlds. Uh, I have come to appreciate uh, the work that is being done in each sector and the motivations that drive leaders in those sectors. Um, 
so based not only on the the CBR on the survey results, but also on my own uh, personal anecdotal observations, um, I'd like to offer uh, my own uh, simplified generalization uh, uh, answer um, to the topic question about what American universities want from their activities in China, why uh, they want uh, to be here. And, oops, I do stop that too soon. Bring it back. So here, what I would stress are four animating uh, motives, understanding and interacting with local consumers, producing goods with high value local talent and infrastructure, minimizing distribution costs and trade barrier risks, and tapping the world-class local innovation ecosystem. Uh, I doubt the participants in this seminar will find any of these four motives at all surprising, um, but I want to nonetheless say just a few words about each one. Um, first is understanding and interacting with local consumers. Um, capitalism gives producers uh, an incentive to produce things that maximize consumer welfare. So by understanding local tastes, uh, which they can do best by being here, American businesses are able to refine and localize their products, uh, whether they're producing the products in the US uh, or uh, they're producing them in China. Uh, second, producing with high value local talent and infrastructure. Um, Chinese labor is no longer the cheapest in the world, as we know, uh, but for uh, most companies, uh, most of our members uh, at AmCham, this is still the best place uh, to have your supply chain uh, because the labor is of high quality uh, and the infrastructure, uh, the roads, the trains, the delivery services and the like um, is, is superb. Um, third, uh, minimizing distribution costs and trade barrier risks. I, I don't think that actually requires any elaboration. Um, fourth, uh, tapping the world-class local innovation ecosystem. Um, if you want to design and develop an innovative new product, uh, China's ecosystem is almost incomparable today. Uh, if you want to do high-tech hardware, Shenzhen offers you almost instantaneous access to every component imaginable, as well as to prototype production facilities that allow a very uh, lightly capitalized startup uh, to produce minimum viable products, uh, test them and iterate um, at, at blazing speed. Um, if you need access to creative design talent, um, cities like Beijing, Shanghai and Hangzhou uh, are, are overflowing with it. So I, I serve on the board of a Maryland based startup that just uh, last week finished clinical trials on a rapid home COVID antigen test. Um, they had the scientific guts of the test, the, the antibodies and the reagents uh, ready to go, but they needed a world-class design firm uh, to develop the housing uh, in such a way that virtually any customer would find it attractive and easy to use and would use it correctly uh, all while keeping manufacturing costs to a minimum. Um, the company looked at dozens of possibilities 
They ended up tapping a Shanghai firm to produce the design. Uh, and by all accounts, the, the product that they produced, the design laps the field along all critical dimensions. Um, so uh, to finish up, uh, let me shift from the descriptive to the normative plane. Um, I think we need to do that in order to address uh, the unspoken implicit question uh, behind the inside the beltway uh, arguments that I caricatured at the outset. Um, so the, the implicit question is, what would be the harm if the American government uh, prohibited our businesses from following uh, their current strategies uh, of engagement and coupling? Um, the, the questioner would, would stipulate that right now businesses are optimizing strategy given current real world constraints, uh, but they'd be asking, why is it such a big deal uh, to force them uh, to settle for second best so that we might uh, promote other objectives? Um, last night, I had happened to have dinner uh, with a friend uh, who's the American citizen manage, managing director for China uh, of an enormous American hospitality company. Um, his company works with Chinese investors who want to build five-star, six-star hotels in China. Uh, the investors build the facilities uh, to the specifications of this American company. Uh, and then the American company puts his name on the facilities and operates them uh, to its international quality standards while adapted to local customer tastes. So I asked my friend, I said I was gonna be uh, doing this webinar, I asked him, uh, what would be wrong with the US government uh, telling his company uh, to stop uh, being here um, because the US government is uh, very unhappy, even angry uh, over some of the things that the Chinese government uh, is doing. And he thought for a while and um, he said uh, he can understand why, uh, in order uh, to protect national security, uh, the government might restrict some company's ability to serve Chinese customers. Uh, it might restrict their ability to purchase Chinese products. Uh, it might restrict their ability to work with Chinese partners, certain Chinese partners anyway. Um, but my friend said uh, quite strongly that uh, in his view, American values place a high burden of proof on the government uh, to show that its national security concerns are legitimate. And so speaking uh, now for myself, uh, I think my friend is right. Uh, when American companies deliver higher value goods and services uh, to Chinese consumers than those consumers could otherwise obtain, then uh, the well-being of those consumers is enhanced, and that is a good from a humanist perspective. Um, in addition, uh, American soft power uh, is enhanced uh, through the activity, and cash resources flow back into American coffers where they can be taxed or invested or consumed and those are all goods from a nationalist perspective. 
in some sectors, uh, this process generates net new jobs back uh, in the United States. Uh, and even more importantly, uh, all forms of cooperation across borders uh, increase mutual understanding uh, and reduce the risk uh, of conflict. Um, those benefits are huge. Um, they should not be lightly foregone. And so I agree with my friend's assignment uh, of the burden of persuasion. Um, two years ago, I should say, in the middle of the trade war, I had the pleasure of working with Danny Roderick uh, and Yao Yang uh, on a project that pulled together a working group of world-class trade economists and legal theorists. Uh, we put together a joint statement uh, setting forth a framework with which two countries that deploy dramatically different approaches to domestic industrial policy can both share the benefits and minimize the harms that attend bilateral trade and uh, would also facilitate fair competition in the multilateral sphere of international trade. Since then, uh, Danny and Stephen Walt have built on that statement uh, to develop a full-blown meta regime uh, for constructing world order. Um, I am absolutely certain that the Roderick Walt system uh, offers a much healthier diplomatic vocabulary um, that political leaders in the US and China could use to discuss their differences than the vocabulary that is currently being deployed. Um, and I strongly encourage the listeners to this webinar uh, to study uh, their paper. So uh, in conclusion, let me say that although um, my generalizations today have been uh, heartfelt and authentic, um, they are also tentative and speculative. Uh, so I very much uh, welcome your questions uh, and suggestions on how to improve them. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Professor Lehman. Um, So you, you, you and Amcham have done a survey of uh, businesses currently in China and, and the results are very informative. Uh, another of the functions of Amcham is that when people are thinking about doing new future business in China, they come to Amcham and, and uh, ask about uh, uh, the conditions they'll face. Have you seen a difference in the level of interest in future investments, uh, uh, a difference in the kinds of questions or level of skepticism you get from people who come to Shanghai to inquire about prospects for the future? Well, uh, obviously, uh, since COVID, um, people aren't coming to Shanghai uh, to inquire about, about prospects um, for the future. So to the extent uh, we're getting questions uh, from businesses that are not here right now, um, those questions would, would come by email uh, primarily. Um, 
and uh, I, I guess I don't have any anything really solid to say uh, in answer to that question. We're not getting uh, questions uh, like that today. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we opened a, a new branch of AmCham Shanghai uh, in Hangzhou and another new branch uh, in Silicon Valley um, in order to facilitate uh, new interactions, new engagement uh, between firms in those two cities um, or those two uh, areas. Um, and uh, at the time, um, this was in 2017, 2018, um, the expectation, 2018, the expectation was that uh, these relationships would soar. Um, they have not. Um, they have not. Uh, and uh, I think um, there are lots of reasons uh, why that might be. Um, uh, but certainly, I mean, I, in, in the background, one question I would ask is whether for companies that are not already in China, uh, the current uh, uh, state of perception as documented in the Pew survey um, uh, of China Will, will mean it's unlikely for businesses to initiate such investment right now. The, the boards, especially boards uh, composed of people who have no uh, on-the-ground experience here, would say it's just uh, the risks are too high. Um, so that would be my expectation, I guess. Thank you. Um, I encourage our listeners to write in questions. Uh, I have a number of additional questions, but but let me go to our audience. Uh, we have a question from Andy Zellick of the uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, he says, what do you understand AmCham's, AmCham members' experience to be with party committees? Uh, the survey data suggests this isn't a major concern. Um, so uh, I'm just quickly looking here. We have a few uh, questions about the uh, the issues, their areas of concern. Um, U.S.-China tensions are are a concern. Uh, tariffs. Um, interestingly, uh, there are concerns about inefficient government bureaucracy. There's, of course, there are, of course, uh, concerns about um, uh, internet restrictions, uh, about IP protection. Uh, about corruption, um, there's not uh, discussion of concerns about uh, a heightened presence of party uh, activity uh, within U.S. businesses. Um, I, I don't hear discussion of that, uh, and and I, I I think 
the the heightened participation of parties would be uh, in um, uh, the the Chinese partners in joint ventures. Um, and again, I'm not not hearing uh, significant concern about that. Um, uh, I, again, we are in Shanghai, and uh, you might see differences. Uh, between companies that are based here and companies that are based in Beijing, uh, companies based in, in, in Shenzhen. Um, uh, I think there's, there remains significant variation um, in party activity uh, and the, the tone and tenor of party activity uh, based on the city that you're in. Thanks. Uh, I'd like to follow up on that, uh, uh, focusing on the role of party committees in the Chinese companies. I hear from uh, Chinese friends in Beijing that often the party secretary's agenda is very different from the CEO's agenda, and they express concern that that will lead to uh, uh, less efficiency. Um, as you said, in China, one would expect tremendous variation. Uh, variation could all be all the way from real confrontations between the party secretary and the CEO uh, to complete co-optation which was often the case in the, in the past. The, the, the CEO would work very closely with a, a party secretary who, who shared his or her uh, uh, views. Uh, can you share any experience of what you're hearing about, about the range of variation and and a likely average effect on, on Chinese business? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not hearing uh, enough uh, to be able to, to, to say more than you just did. Um, there are, uh, you know, I, I, I've heard anecdotes uh, of the kind of confrontation you describe. Uh, and anecdotes of of very very calm and peaceful uh, coexistence, where it's more than that. It's it's the company continues to operate uh, according to uh, market imperatives, uh, but the the party secretary is there uh, in the room. Um, uh, but I, I I don't have a sense of. Uh, frequency other than just the, the general expectation that you're going to see uh, quite significant variation uh, based on uh, on location uh, and, 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 and the, the character and personality of the city. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Mark Zoni, the director of the Fairbanks Center. He says, thanks for a very informative talk. The overwhelming impression is of stasis in business views. 
we shared similar, although less informed, perspectives with senior U.S. government officials recently. Their view is that this actually confirms your caricatures, namely that U.S. business has not adjusted to the changing reality of U.S.-China competition. And therefore, it is entirely correct that U.S. policy should not take into account the partial slash naive slash self-defeating positions held by AmCham survey participants. Uh, in other words, they reverse the burden of proof argument. Uh, how do you respond when confronted with these views? Um, uh, great question. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to do our door knock in the next uh, two months. And I'm trying to prepare uh, for the exact eventuality that you uh, that you describe, um, uh, I, I, I will say uh, it is a, a, a direct uh, echo of uh, the the message uh, that that universities received a few years ago uh, about how they're naive and clueless uh, about the the overwhelming number of spies in their midst um, and uh, when they uh, deny uh, when they offer to cooperate and, 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 and deny any perception that, that in fact there are so many spies uh, it's taken as confirmation of their naivete um, uh, you know the, 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 the trick is to take uh, an argument that is structured so as to be uh, irrefutable uh, and, to, and to come up with a, a test that would allow for refutation. And usually what they say is, uh, ask the question, uh, what could we show you? What kind of evidence could persuade you uh, that in fact, uh, the perceptions that we hold are not benighted um, uh, and to, to try to, to, to elicit um, some points of engagement. But right now, um, I, I don't know how to, to, you know, that that asking the question that way is impolite uh, when talking with government officials. And so um, you know, you're expected to, to make your case, and I, I, I'm not sure uh, exactly uh, how to do that. So if you have thoughts and suggestions, please uh, uh, send them along, because um, uh, it's, uh, there is this, this sense of bishops of opposite color, ships passing in the night um, uh, in, in the discussions these days. Um, I don't know what else to say. I, I would just add a personal note that, that case studies are a help. I have never seen a U.S. government official uh, express awareness that General Motors was saved by China's decision to be much more open to foreign uh, car companies 
than our allies, China, our allies, Japan and Korea. And uh, 2000, General Motors was circling the drain. It was losing money in the US. It was losing money in Europe. Uh, it was running out of capital. And uh, China opened its doors, uh, saved the company. And uh, General Motors sells 2.9 million cars a year in China and 2.9 million in the US, but makes more money from the 2.9 million in China. And the other thing is that the Chinese engineers redesigned the Buick. Uh, so, so people under 65 years old might be interested in buying a Buick. And that, that redesign by Chinese engineers which, by the way, GM publicized as German engineering, but it was called Chinese engineering. That saved Buick from going the way of, of Oldsmobile. And that's an extreme case. But there are many similar cases where if, if major, major American businesses lost the Chinese market, they would be dead. Uh, and uh, so case studies might be the, 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 the best response. But let me move back to our audience. Uh, Hong Ru Xiong. Let me just say, Bill, uh, yeah, um, uh, Julian, the managing director of GM China now, uh, is we're, we're planning to have him on the door knock. And so uh, he, can, he, can, he can testify. Uh, to the examples you just described. Great. Uh, so Hung Ru Xiong says, many thanks for your fantastic talk. My question is related to the local innovation system mentioned in your talk. How do you evaluate the openness of Chinese local innovation system towards U.S. business? Are there any critical impediments? Um, well, uh, I think um, the, the structural in impediments uh, presumably uh, are, I mean, the, 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 the companies that, that, that the company whose board I sit on uh, interviewed and the company uh, we ended up choosing to work with um, was incredibly uh, open, eager, um, uh, they, they were, you know, they, they believed in the mission. They believe in the mission, uh, of responding to a pandemic and reducing illness and death. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they were, um, in, in incredibly, uh, effective in helping on the design side, uh, in terms of the ecosystem in Shenzhen for hardware development. Um, again, American businesses that are here uh, use that ecosystem all the time, um, and they they absolutely tap into it. I don't think they have any problems. The only impediments I I, I might see would be if uh, the innovation uh, involves the use 
of uh, sensitive IP or incredibly valuable IP. Um, they, they might be uh, a little bit cautious uh, about uh, putting that IP into a place uh, where, where it could be stolen. But that would be the only impediment that I, I can think of right now. Thank you. Um, question from Nara Dillon of Harvard, who is a member of the committee who organizes uh, uh, this lecture series. Do you think smart trade, so-called, is an improvement over the tariff policies of the last few years? If so, in what ways? Um. I think a little early to to to, to know. Um, I, I think uh, you know when I um, uh, watched the news this week, um, it was not entirely clear to me from Ambassador Tai's remarks uh, how. Uh, how much the new ex tariff exclusion policies uh, would be tailored uh, to business needs. Um, I just saw a few hours ago that, that apparently uh, there were something like 500 plus initial rounds of exclusion ready to go. Um, that, that certainly seemed, uh, seems to me like the kind of approach uh, that is that is needed. I think um, uh, I was talking to the Charge d'Affaires uh, last week um, uh, about this, and 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 he agrees that that what is needed is a, a scalpel rather than a, a sledgehammer uh, approach. Uh, when there are uh, clear uh, issues um, and a tariff uh, provides a well-targeted response, then great. Um, but uh, across the board, tariffs uh, have all of the, 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 the consequences that we've known you know, since David Ricardo about the loss of welfare that comes when you in interfere with trade. Thank you. Um... From an anonymous attendee, it must be highly beneficial to U.S. companies to stay in China, despite what happened recently. On the other hand, what have China and the Chinese people gained from decades of U.S. and foreign investment? What percentage of the profit actually goes back to China and Chinese people, especially Chinese workers? What environmental impact have U.S. and foreign companies had on China? While well, taking advantage of high-quality labor in China, have the foreign companies been beneficial to Chinese workers' welfare, including their labor rights? Um, well, I can only speak of my perceptions here. I don't have great data, uh, but my perceptions uh, are that the presence of American business here has been uh, extremely good uh, for uh, Chinese workers. 
uh, that there there has been a kind of standard setting, a kind of norm setting um, that has ex that started with uh, uh, American companies and extended outwards. Um, this includes uh, things like uh, uh, labor uh, supply chain audits, uh, which began decades ago um, and have become uh, normalized. Um, uh, I, I, I uh, you know, I think um, there, you know, it's, it's certainly the case that uh, wages have gone up uh, significantly in the last few decades uh, in China. I can't, uh, you know, answer the causal question uh, of, of whether they would have gone up uh, as much if American businesses had never been here. Uh, I don't know the answer to that counterfactual. Um, my, my, my hunch uh, is that people, uh, the presence of American businesses and American labor demands uh, was a factor uh, in those increases. I, I could just add, uh, I was based in Hong Kong in the 80s and 90s uh, with American businesses who were early entrants uh, into China. When I first visited China in 1982, uh, China would buy high-tech equipment, uh, but then it would sit around. Uh, companies had no, high, no, no understanding of how to use it. And it was, it, it was uh, uh, American and other Western and Taiwanese and South Korean uh, management uh, uh, of companies in China that taught uh, Chinese companies how, how to function in modern manufacturing and modern high-tech industry. So uh, essentially 100% of China's ability uh, to function in, in modern industry came came from foreign investment. Uh, when I was working on one book on China, 70% of, 78% of uh, China's high-tech exports uh, were from Taiwan companies based in China. Uh, and they learned, they learned from American companies. Uh, when things got started, uh, in basically in the mid 80s, uh, there were essentially no labor standards, no environmental standards uh, in, in China. And uh, American companies uh, under pressure from, from uh, domestic groups uh, formulated standards. And for the first time, there were, there were standards about wages, there were standards about, about working conditions, about pollution in the air. Uh, and it, 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 this all came through, through the entrance of, of foreign companies. 
And in terms of those kinds of standards, it almost all came from American companies because the worst offenders on labor and environmental standards were South Korean and Taiwan companies, who, which were much, much bigger investors than the American ones. So uh, America really, really took a, a, a leadership role in, in, in all these areas. Um, uh, let's move on to another question from the audience. Um, David Schwartz asks, do you have any information on the percentage of assets held in Chinese banks that are owned by U.S. and Western corporate subsidiaries? I think that's probably uh, a very difficult question to answer. So I, I, I guess there, there are two ways to understand the question. One is, uh, as, as stated, what percentage of the holdings in Chinese banks uh, derive from, from those uh, sources? Uh, my uh, hunch is very, very low percentage. Uh, uh, another way of interpreting the question would, would be uh, what percentage of the holdings of U.S. and Western corporate subsidiaries are placed in Chinese banks uh, rather than being repatriated. And there, I, I, I think it's the opposite there. I think uh, it's a fairly high percentage of, of profits uh, stay here um, as companies are continuing to expand. And it's only when their growth trajectory slows down uh, that they start to do significant repatriation. But again, that's, that's a wild overgeneralization of my impressions. Uh, we have a question from a visiting scholar at the Fairbanks Center, Xiong Hyun Lee. Do you think the outside concerns about Xi Jinping and his leadership style are exaggerated? How do you evaluate the changes under Xi Jinping? And I would just expand that question. Uh, uh, what do you see as the effects of the the regulatory changes on on high tech industry, on competition policy, on on uh, data uh, privacy? Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing uh, quite drastic changes. How do these affect business? Well, that's uh, the $64 million question of dinner table conversations here uh, right now, uh, uh, every day. I don't think anybody knows. Um, uh, the, the changes uh, in regulatory policy uh, over the last four months uh, have been uh, dramatic uh, and uh, unforeseen uh, by most commentators. I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I read uh, Dan Wong to try to understand uh, what, what the, the theory behind them is and what the meaning uh, of them is. Uh, but I, um, I, I have 
no uh, ability uh, to predict uh, what the the different effects of the new policies uh, are going to be. Um, other than that, you know, right now uh, the the targeted areas are definitely shrinking uh, and, and 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 shrinking fast. I'd like to ask a, a question about the uh, attitudes of the business community toward the existing uh, tariff structure that the U.S. imposed under President Trump and that are, are being uh, maintained so far under President Biden. Is there... Uh, is there a consensus view or a, a, a interesting distribution of views about the ongoing effects of those tariffs? Oh, the the consensus view is that uh, the 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 tariffs uh, have done harm uh, to American businesses. Uh, some were bit by the U U.S. tariffs, uh, which raised the cost of important inputs, uh, intermediate goods uh, in, into their their structure. Uh, some were bit hit by uh, uh, the responsive Chinese tariffs, uh, which made their own uh, products uh, less competitive. Um, I think the, the, the biggest uh, concerns uh, have, were uh, from the beginning about the loss of uh, market share uh, of uh, U.S. Uh, producers uh, to European producers. Uh, U.S. companies that held significant advantages in terms of value uh, of their products uh, over European competitors uh, suddenly saw things flipped uh, on their head. Um, so I, I don't know of, uh, of any uh, U.S. companies that love tariffs. Um, uh, the, 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 the dialogue that took place uh, in 2019 uh, was uh, we don't like tariffs, uh, and then the the government response was, "Well, okay, we know you don't like them, but we believe they're necessary. Um, what do you propose instead uh, to accomplish uh, our objectives?" And the ultimately, the business community wasn't able to to offer alternatives um, because uh, they didn't have access. Uh, to the uh, information, which was uh, uh, often um, uh, required a security clearance uh, that was being used to uh, explain the, the 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 tariff war. I think you know the the surface explanation that said the tariffs were uh, a necessary and appropriate response to the findings of the 301 investigation. Um, uh, I, I don't know of too many business people who were persuaded by that uh, as an explanation. Uh, 
Um, uh, I don't, you know, although there are criticisms uh, of IP protection, criticisms of denials of market access, uh, criticisms of uh, unequal playing field, uh, 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 unevenly applied regulations, um, uh, uh, most businesses, yes, 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 we, we have those criticisms, but we don't feel those concerns strongly enough uh, to want there to be a tariff war. Um, that's, that's pretty dramatic because the, the, the basic message that the U.S. government sends to the American public is that uh, the reason for these tariffs is to support American business. Well, I think um, if I were to make the argument in favor of it, uh, the argument would have to be uh, this is uh, not to support American businesses that are in China. Um, this is to, to support other American businesses uh, who are, are, are suffering in international competition. Um, uh, I think that would be the, the explanation. Again, I think the burden of proof uh, lies on those who want to make that argument. Well, thank you very much. We're, we're running out of time. Uh, uh, this has been very enlightening. Uh, we're very grateful for your, your uh, ideas and we Hope to hear more from you in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.